He doesn't understand the yields of certain crops based off of the types of soil that's there, the, the weather patterns and things like that. So for him in this particular investment niche, this investment strategy, working with the farmers when you're actually underwriting your deals is very, very important. How great would it be to buy a piece of institutional quality income producing commercial buildings? Well, now you can with Building Bits. It's not a REIT or a fund. Building Bits is a new platform for non-accredited investors where virtually anyone, regardless of income, can select a building lease to a major corporation with a guaranteed long-term lease. You can now invest in the same quality assets, which have previously only been available to institutions and wealthy individuals. Once you choose your building on BuildingBits.com, you can invest as little as $500 and receive your share of the rents while Building Bits' team of real estate pros handles all the management aspects of the building. For the first time, the big corporations in America can actually start paying you. And when the building is sold in the future, the potential appreciation is redistributed to everyone so you don't just get the rental income, but also share in the upside. Best of all, since these securities are SEC qualified, they are freely tradable immediately. The $500 minimum with no upfront fees is available for a limited time. There are great properties available nationwide with major tenants, so don't wait. Go to buybits.us today and pick your property before they're all sold out of their current inventory. That's buybits.us. That's buy, B-U-I, bits, B-I-T-S, dot U-S. The SEC offering circular is available at buildingbits.com. Best ever listeners, how you doing? Welcome to the best real estate investing advice ever show. I'm Joe Fairless. This is the world's longest running daily real estate investing podcast where we only talk about the best advice ever. We don't get into any of that fluffy stuff. We hate that fluffy stuff. With us today, we got Theo Hicks, like you normally do now. Welcome back, Theo Hicks. Once again, you were here last Friday, but missed you over that month and a half period of time. Glad you're back. And today we're going to be talking about lessons that Theo learned. So Theo sat in to do some interviews for the show while I had to do some stuff. So Theo, you interviewed a bunch of people and I did. you learned some things. So let's talk about some of the lessons you learned from interviews. We're also going to talk about just some quick updates on our stuff too. Perfect. So I guess I'm going to approach this. I'm going to explain the specific lesson and then kind of discuss how I think it can apply to really any type of real estate investment strategy in general. So let's just jump right into it. So first, one of the people I interviewed, his name was Ryan Inc. And he's kind of investing in a lot of different niches. But one that was specifically interesting is that he developed a $2 million indoor sports arena. So those places with the indoor turf and you can go there and play, pick up flag football games or indoor soccer matches, things like that. And so obviously my first question was, how did you do that? Because you don't major in sports arenas in college. How do you even come across something like that? And how do you figure out how to do it? And sure enough, he said he had no experience whatsoever. He explained why he did it, but I'm not going to go into that now. But what was interesting is that he essentially just, once he decided that's what he was going to do, he just Googled consultants, found a consultant and paid him to create a business plan for the sports arena because I guess there's a couple websites out there that specialize in these indoor sports arenas. So if you have a very unique investment niche you want to get into, it sounds like there's consultants for everything these days. But what was also interesting about his strategy is that even though he got the consultant and had that business plan, he still was having trouble getting money from investors because of the fact that he himself had never managed a sports arena before. So what he did, which I thought was interesting, he went to an existing sports arena and essentially created a daytime sports league for kids. I believe it was kids soccer. And he managed that for a little bit and made a business out of that and showed proof of concept, had some income coming in. And then he took that business to his investors and said, hey, I've got this consultant. 
that helped me create this business plan. It's going to help me determine what kind of equipment I need, what building size to develop. And then I also, once I take over the property, I've got this business that I've created for how to actually manage a daytime sports league. So I thought that was really interesting. One, again, because of the Googling the consultant, but two, you kind of kept hitting these roadblocks and essentially just figured it out. You had a fascinating conversation with him. I'm looking forward to listening to that interview. How long did he have that daytime league and how long he do that until he then represented the opportunity to investors? I can't remember exactly how long it was, but it wasn't something that was like a few weeks or a few months. I think it was six months to a year. Good for him. That's a freaking example of resourcefulness. And Mm -hmm. I got a vision. I'm going to make the vision happen. Yeah, there would be some challenges along the way, but whatever. I'll overcome them. What determination and resolve that he had. He goes in a lot more detail on the numbers and everything like that during the actual episode. So it was a very interesting conversation. I enjoyed that one. So that's number one. Number two, it was two people. They're a couple. It was Leticia Elto and Kenji Esakura. Real quick, isn't it hard to interview two people, by the way? (laughs) Yeah, it's different. I never know if they're pausing and I'm supposed to talk or if they're pausing because they're waiting for the other person to talk. (laughs) Especially if they're two males or two females, because then you don't have the voices down. So you don't know who's talking. And so that's why I like to keep it to one. So I'm glad that you did the two-person interview. Yeah, so yeah, I, I experienced that. This is a quick one. They were initially just doing kind of the standard conventional rental properties, like buying the duplexes and fourplexes and renting them out. And they eventually transitioned in development. And when I asked them why they did that, they said that one of the main reasons why they did that is because they wanted to come up with new content for their blog readers. So <laughs> by going through the process of developing and putting together a team, going through a deal and the challenges of a deal, not only were they obviously entering a new investment niche, but they were also had a bunch of blog posts they could share with their viewers and their readers could see how they kind of overcame those challenges in development so that they wanted to start becoming developers. They'd only be a year or two behind them. But that was interesting. (laughs) What's your takeaway there? Similar to the Ryan Inc. one is that if you put your mind to it, you can kind of really do any investment niche that you really want to, as long as you've got some strong why behind it. Their why was creating new content for their blog, which was a very successful blog that I'm sure generated a lot of income for them. And then in Ryan Inc., his why was he wanted to do some sort of investment that people would enjoy. Obviously, people enjoy living at homes, but something that was more unique. One thing that stands out to me on the second lesson is 50-50 goals. So what are their names? Leticia and... Uh, Leticia and Kenji. And Kenji. Leticia and Kenji, they said they're going to go into development because they wanted content for the blog and to walk the readers through the challenges of doing a development deal or development deals. And what they did by doing that is they set themselves up for success regardless of the outcome of the actual deals. Because when we've talked about 50-50 goals, we've talked about, okay, 50% of your goal is actually reaching the quantifiable metric. And then the other 50% is regardless of what that outcome is, what have you done That will help you in the long run. So this is a success when you start, regardless of the actual quantifiable outcome. So in this blog case, well, let's say these development deals, and I haven't listened to the interview yet. Let's say these development deals, all of them just lost all their money. Well, that's a pretty compelling blog post, right? (laughs) So they're still getting traction with their readers And they're still getting entertaining content and lessons that people can learn from their mistakes. I'm not saying they made those mistakes. I don't know. I haven't listened to the interview. But 
they're setting themselves up to win regardless of the outcome. And it goes back to those 50-50 goals we've talked about. Yeah, just to add to that before we move on to the next lesson, the process of actually writing the blog post too is probably very powerful because I know you will every day or every once in a while, you'll write out what good things happened to me today, what bad things happened to me today. Like how can I make tomorrow better than yesterday? So that process right there helps you really improve upon more of your personal life as well as business too. But just the process of sitting there like, all right, so I had to write a blog post. I had to create content and it has to be valuable to my readers. So let's go ahead and analyze this specific aspect of this deal and figure out what we could have done better. And maybe they didn't do that. They wouldn't have learned that lesson and that wouldn't have helped them in the future. So kind of similar to what you're saying about the 50-50 goals. Yep. So the third one is another quick lesson. And it's not more of a lesson. It's just very interesting. Brian Luffman. So he's a syndicator, but he doesn't syndicate apartments. He syndicates farmland. I think I've spoken to him already too. Yeah. So please continue. Something that he said that was interesting is that for farmland, he's not a farmer. He was never, he's never been a farmer. He doesn't understand the yields of certain crops based off of the types of soil that's there, the, the weather patterns and things like that. So for him, in this particular investment niche, his investment strategy, working with the farmers when you're actually underwriting your deals is very, very important. So he has a bunch of relationships with the farmers. He knows all the farmers in his little area that he invests in. They were mostly in the Midwest. And sometimes farmers will actually come to him and say, hey, there's this deal. And if you buy it, I'll farm it. So from like a multifamily perspective, that'd be kind of like a property management company coming to you with a deal and saying, hey, I got this deal. You buy it and I'll actually manage it for you. Yeah. And kind of just the importance of having someone that is very knowledgeable about the area or that specific asset class on your team, especially if you're doing very large deals or very unique types of deals that it would be very difficult for you to understand and learn about in a short amount of time. You had some fun interviews last week. I did. Yeah. Yeah. Those are three things I've never come across. I think the third one, I've interviewed someone in that capacity who's had a fund. Was this person raising money through a fund? No. no, no okay. No. So a different person. I interviewed a different farm person. That's, that's cool stuff. Thanks mm-hmm. for sharing that. Uh, number four, it was Sarah Lyon. She's a residential real estate agent. She's actually a stay-at-home mom and then transitioned into residential real estate and has won a bunch of awards. And she uh, passively invested in a 120-unit deal down in Dallas-Fort Worth, and we we're kind of talking about that. And I was asking her questions about how she's going about qualifying the deals and qualifying the actual syndicator. And the first person, she just knew through one of the awards that she won, and it was like 30 under 30 for that area. And a person that was also in that 30 was a syndicator and they kind of met up and she decided to invest in one of his deals. But the second deal was really interesting. So she is on, I'm not sure if it's actually the board, but it's something like the board for the local YMCA down in one of the neighborhoods in, in Dallas, Fort Worth. And she's heavily involved in that and heavily involved in community projects. And she happened to come across a, a passive investment in an area that was right now in the moment, like a pretty rough area. I can't remember what the actual name of the area was, but it was pretty rough with crime and rents being low. But because of her involvement in the YMCA that are also on this board, she learned about a very heavy revitalization push and a lot of major CapEx projects coming to the area over the next five to 10 years. That on top of some other due diligence she did swayed her decision to invest in that specific deal, even though if you didn't know about that, you probably wouldn't invest because of the current crime in the area. And I know something that we've talked about before is obviously the primary objective for volunteering is to give back. But we've talked about before, our secondary objective is getting on the board because those are high net worth affluent individuals who could possibly be passive investors in your deal. But another possible outcome is you 
building relationships with people who are maybe developers or they're on city council and they have inside information on things that are coming in the future that the general population of investors don't have. So I thought that was interesting. Yeah, that is. And then lastly, his name is Preddy Tawari. And he transitioned from doing rental properties in college to doing condo conversions. And he finds his deals by knocking on doors. He's in Boston and he'll create his list of potential multifamilies that he could potentially convert into condos. And apparently in Boston, a lot of these duplexes, fourplexes, six units are, are owned by family for a long time. And they actually live in one of the units. So the person actually lives at the actual property. Because I was wondering, like, are you talking to tenants? Like, who are you talking to there? And they'll go and a lot of them will talk to them and explain his business plan and see if he can buy the property. And like most strategies like this, not every single person says yes. And most people, if they do say yes, it's not for a long time. But what was interesting is that a lot of people talk about when you're knocking on doors, sending out direct mail, the goal is to identify pain points. And the pain points that he identified and solved were pretty interesting. He gave an example. So he knocked on the door of one owner and they weren't interested in selling at the moment. But two months later, he reached back out and said he was interested in selling. But an issue was he didn't know where to live and he was kind of by himself and wasn't able to move any of his stuff out. And so Preddy actually helped him move all the stuff out of the property. He increased the closing date by two months. He actually provided him with some upfront cash. He used as a down payment for another property. So essentially any issue that this guy had with selling, he just solved. Um, <laughs> that cash part was kind of weird to me at first until he explained how much money he's actually going to make on the deal. And then it's kind of like, okay, we definitely should have done that down payment because it's going to be like a multi-million dollar profit on a duplex he's converting into four condos. Mm. So I thought that was interesting, his kind of door knocking strategy. And just quickly, the second thing, this is the last lesson I learned, and this is similar to the 50-50 goals, but he was talking about his best ever advice was to network. This is kind of obvious, of course, I'm going to network. But for him, when he networks, he will do it before he actually needs anything. So he won't be like, all right, I need money to buy this deal. So I'm going to go out and network with people. And in the back of my mind, I have this need and I'm trying to convince them to invest in my deals. No, what he does is he just networks with everyone. And then if you need something, he'll go back and be like, all right, I met this guy two years ago who's a broker in this market. I can use him to find a team member that I need or something like that. And if you have a vision for your business, you can be intentional about who you reach out to prior to you being at that stage in the business where you need stuff. And then you can just get to know them, build a relationship with them. And then six months down the line, a year, three months, two years, whatever, then you can talk to them about whatever that particular role that you're looking for them to help with is. Yeah. It was actually tough to pick just five because I probably could have done like 10 or 20 because they were really good interviews. Yeah. Um, but those are kind of the five main interesting things slash lessons that I learned from my interviews last week. Well, everyone has something interesting to say. It's just a matter of if we're able to pull it out of them from the questions that we ask. And it sounds like you're asking some really good questions. I firmly believe that I can learn anything from anyone on earth. It's just a matter of me asking the right questions. And I think that's just a global truth. Mm -hmm. And so nice work on the interviews. I haven't listened to any of them, but I will. And thanks for sharing those lessons learned. Absolutely. So I know you have a few things you wanted to share, some business updates. Yeah. um, One business update and one other thing I want to get your opinion on. So business update, we sold a property yesterday. Congrats to all those investors. Did very well and everyone's excited. So that's good. And 
Here's what I want to get your opinion on, Theo. So yesterday, one of my friends on Facebook, he does the following post, and then it has about 30 comments. So best ever listeners, I want to read you the post, and then I'm going to tell you something about my thought process, and then I'm going to tell you what I responded with. And I'm a little disappointed with the lack of, oh, wow, what a great idea, (laughs) Joe. I think it fell on deaf ears with all the people who are commenting. And I just want to get your opinion on if it was a good response. And if so, or if not, why do you think people weren't like, oh, that's an awesome idea. So here's what this person posted on Facebook. He says, our five-year-old wants to do a lemonade and popcorn stand during our community yard sale this weekend. As her business consultants, we need to provide her some market research to help maximize profits. So we need your help. One, how much would you pay for a glass of fresh lemonade? Two, what size cup of lemonade would you like for that price? Three, would you prefer fresh lemonade from actual lemon juice or the fake country time kind? Any and all other advice is also welcome. So There's the the scenario with multiple questions that was proposed. So let me give you a little bit of context about how I think. So I went to a conference a couple years ago, and you might have gone. I don't remember if you went with me or not. And it was in Cincinnati. I didn't get a lot out of it except for this one speaker who commanded a room very well. And he was the real estate guy. This conference was personal development and other things, but there's this real estate guy. And one thing he said, which was, tied into real estate, but it's really just business, is he has a kid and his kid would get paid $7 an hour to wash a car. But when the kid went on stage with him and introduced him to the crowd, he'd give him a hundred bucks. And the lesson that he was teaching his kid was there are certain things that we can do in business. That's a commodity, like washing a car where a decent amount of people can wash cars and you get paid a fixed price based on the market rate of washing a car. You have a cap on how much you can make. Whereas if you get in front of a room of 500 people and you introduce someone and you get those people excited, well, there's not a lot of people who would choose to do that. And it's a skill that is valued higher than the former. So that's why he gave his kid a hundred bucks to do that. And I really love that thought process. I love the thought process that the market will pay you the value that you bring to it. And first off, do you remember that conference? Do you remember that? Yeah, I, I do. Yeah, you do. I know, okay. I, know, so I, know, you, I know exactly what you're talking about. All right. So we did attend this together. It was a couple of years ago. So that's always stuck with me. Always. So back to this question. They're asking about how much would you pay for a glass of fresh lemonade? Any and all advice? What size lemonade? Do you want the real stuff, the fake stuff, whatever? Everyone who had responded, and I was like the 16th, 17th response, everyone who had responded said something like, and I'll read a couple, real lemonade, maybe extra incentive from buyers if there's a little sign saying she's raising money, or a dollar for a solo cup of country time, or 20 ounce minimum with at least a dollar unless you make it so they can get quick change, a dollar, one more, I'll give you both, country time and the real deal, real deal more expensive. So... I read those responses, but here's what I say, and I'll just read you exactly what I wrote. I'd say that lemonade is a commodity that can be easily priced based on market rates, which limits her upside. In addition to lemonade, I suggest 
adding in a bonus gift for each paying customer that isn't a commodity, such as a piece of art she draws or colors. That gives her limitless upside in her price point. Isn't that great? Yeah. <laughs> You're gonna, I, got I, mean, one, I got one freaking like. There were 15 other comments after mine. <laughs> it like fell on deaf ears. I'm thinking this is a great lesson you can teach a kid or even a, a person. Don't do a commodity. Everyone's got a freaking lemonade stand. Do something that isn't a commodity. It's like, oh, and I get this wonderful piece of art. Well, what's this piece of art worth? Well, limitless. What are your thoughts? Let me tell you a story from my perspective. So I actually saw this last night and I saw the post and I read your response and I apologize for not liking it. I typically don't ever click anything on Facebook. I just, only time I really post is we do it in our private communication group. When I read it, I like smiled. I was like, this is like a really good idea. <laughs> I didn't like it. So the second I saw you, you sent this over to me, I was like, oh, I, I can't wait to say that I, I, I saw that. But I'm sorry to say that I didn't actually like click the like button. When I read it, I was like, that's genius. Like if I saw a lemonade stand and they had a sign that said fresh lemonade plus free finger painting or something, I'd be way more likely to stop. I would never stop for something like that. This is how I am. But if I saw that, especially not having a kid, like, that's adorable. Yeah. And for the record, I don't care how many likes I do or don't get on posts. I don't care. I just thought it was an interesting result of, hey, I think this is the right approach, but the crowd doesn't seem to agree. I thought it was intellectually interesting. And what I would do is I would actually flip it. I wouldn't say, here's a lemonade stand with art. I'd say, here's art for sale. And you get some lemonade with mm. that. So you lead with the thing that isn't a commodity. And then, oh, you also get lemonade too. How much would you pay for a piece of custom artwork from a five-year-old plus a glass of lemonade? I guarantee you she would make more than $3 per transaction. And that would be much more than whatever a glass of lemonade would be, a dollar or whatever else. Yeah, I wouldn't post the art in my office somewhere, but just like the experience of doing it would be worth paying five bucks for it. Because obviously the kid put a lot of time into this and thought into this or someone did. And again, that's just kind of, that's just really adorable if a kid was doing an art sale. And and obviously the lesson is the market pays for value. And if you're in a commodity business, then you're going to be priced out. All right, we got to keep rolling. All right, I don't have any specific updates. Let's move into the trivia question. So last week's trivia question was, what is the average age of the first time home buyer? The answer was 32 years old. So just the kind of the top end of the millennials are the average age for the first time home buyer. So the first person that got that correct should be receiving a signed copy of a first best ever book. What did I say? Do you remember? 34 years old. Well, you were close. Yeah, yeah well, yeah, that's, that's light years away from the actual answer. Everyone knew the answer was going to be somewhere in the early 30s. Mm-hmm. Okay. This week's question is a little different. So there's a, a residential home in LA called the Chartwell Estate. It's 11 bedrooms, 18 bathrooms. It's got a ballroom. It can hold 12,000 bottles of wine in the wine cellar and a formal saloon. Exterior is 10.39 acres. There's a 75-foot swimming pool, a tennis court, and a 40-car garage. Now, this is the nation's most expensive residential listing of all time. What is the current list price? Where is it located? LA. Oh. It's in Bel Air. Oh, my gosh. 10 acres in Bel Air. Uh, I can say I haven't been shopping there recently, but I'll go 90 million. 90 million. All right. So either email info at joefairless.com. Or put it in the comment section below the YouTube video with your answer. And the first person to get the correct answer will receive a free signed copy of our first book. And then lastly, the review of the week 
If you leave a review for our best ever apartment syndication book, not only will you receive an email with a link to download a bunch of free apartment syndication goodies, but you'll also be able to have your review right a lot on the following Friday. This week's review comes from Dan Smith, and he said, this book does a great job of laying out the step-by-step path from square one to purchasing apartments via syndication. I went through four whole highlighters on my first read-through alone. <laughs> this will definitely be a reference book for me moving forward. Uh, Dan, you got to buy some better quality highlighters. Those <laughs> things run out really quickly. But thank you so much for leaving that review. Glad you're getting a lot of value from it. Best ever listeners, enjoyed our conversation. Talk to you tomorrow. Wouldn't it be nice to buy a piece of institutional quality, income-producing commercial real estate buildings for as little as $500? Now you can with Building Bits. Building Bits is a new platform where virtually anyone, regardless of income, can select a building leased to a major corporation with a guaranteed long-term lease. The $500 minimum with no upfront fees is available only for a limited time. There are great properties available nationwide with major tenants, so don't wait. Go to buybits.us today and pick your property before they're all sold out of the current inventory. That's buybits.us. That's buy, B-U-I, bits, B-I-T-S, dot U-S. The SEC offering circular is available at buildingbits.com. I know some of you out there are just starting your fix and flip journey. Before you do, let me tell you about an opportunity where your money works for you instead of you working for it. Building Bits is offering anyone, and I mean anyone, the opportunity to invest in commercial real estate and receive the dividends and value appreciation from the sale. Here's how it works. First, you choose a building and invest. Second, once the building is acquired, you start to receive potential quarterly dividends. Third, once the building sells, you get any of the appreciated value from it. See, money working for you, not you working for the money. Start today at buybits.us forward slash flip. The offering circular is available at buildingbits.com.